This Bible that I hold in my hand right here is one of several copies that I own, and you may be the same way. Uh, a few different copies, a few different translations. It's nothing for us now to uh, have actually several copies of the Bible. Um, in fact, the Bible is by far the best-selling book in the world. And uh, if you're curious, there are about 5 million Bibles that are sold in the United States every year. So if you break that down, here's how it breaks down. It's a 40, uh, 50, excuse me, 54,794 per day. That's 2,283 per hour, 38 per minute, and one roughly every two seconds. That's how many Bibles are distributed and, and sold, and that's just in the U.S. If you want to get a better picture of worldwide, multiply that number times about five, and that's what you'll get. And so, uh, sadly, there are still parts of the world where they do not have access to a Bible in their own native language. And so there are groups continuing to work toward that. Um, but if you were to rewind a few centuries back, you would find that nobody in a situation like us, no commoners, had access to God's Word. Uh, and I'm fascinated as I read some of the stories, and I would encourage you to do the same, read some of the stories of people who made it their life's mission to get the Bible into common language so that the average person could understand it. For example, William Tyndale was one of those. He was born in 1494. He quickly uh, displayed exceptional intellectual gifts. He became a priest. He was gifted in languages, was fluent in seven different languages, and even taught himself Greek and Hebrew so that he could read the uh, scriptures in their original language. Uh, but when he was reading the Greek New Testament, he was captivated by what he read about this, this great principle in Scripture of justification by grace. And that ran contrary to what was taught by the church at that time. Keep in mind, during this time, the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on all doctrine. And so the average person was not able to read the scriptures and so they had no access directly they were taught what they were taught and told what to believe and when Tyndale read this for himself he said we got to get the word out and so he went to um, some of his superiors there in London and he said I I'm, I'm going to ask you for some funding to translate the Bible into English well it, it, it wasn't received so well uh, but he wasn't the first one, we'll come back to his story in a minute, he wasn't the first one to try. About a hundred years before this, there was a guy by the name of John Wycliffe who had the same idea. He wanted to get the Bible into uh, English, into the English language, but his goal was simply to take the Vulgate, which was the Latin translation of the Bible, that was kind of the, the authoritative Bible at that time. He wanted to take that Bible and translate it into English, and once again, you might imagine that those that were in authority didn't care for that idea so much, and he faced a lot of opposition. Uh, he was, his, his belief that the Bible should be given to the average person was not well received. And uh, he was, you know, pretty much shunned during his lifetime. He died of a stroke in 1384, but in 1415, the Council of Constance declared him to be a heretic. They said that all of his works should be burned. They exhumed his body 
burned his body and scattered the ashes in the river Swift, all because he had a desire to get the Bible into the language people can understand. Well, back to, uh, back to Tyndale. Tyndale also faced a lot of opposition. When he went to uh, his superiors, they said no. It was obvious that nobody in, in England, anywhere in England, was going to fund this project or be supportive of his project at all. And so he decided to go to the free cities of Europe. He ended up in a Lutheran city called Worms, which if you look at it, it looks like Worms, but that's not how they pronounced it. And he went to Worms and he translated the New Testament directly from the Greek language into English. For his efforts, uh, he was eventually arrested. He had someone that pretended to be a friend that came to him and uh, eventually turned him over. And uh, he was arrested. Uh, before he was arrested, after he finished his translation, King Henry VIII... Cardinal Wolsey and Sir Thomas More, who was the Chancellor of England at the time, were not too pleased. Listen to what More said about Tyndale's translation. He said, It's not worthy to be called Christ's testament, but either Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master Antichrist. So that gives you some idea of just how strong the opposition was to this idea of translating the Bible into English. So uh, Tyndale was tricked into being lured away from his home. He was arrested. He was put in prison for a little over a year. That was 1535. In August of 1536, he was condemned as a heretic. He was removed from the priesthood. And he was brought to the middle of the town, to the square, to give a chance to recant. He refused. So they told him that he would die. They would burn him at the stake. And they asked him, do you have anything else? And they actually gave him a moment to pray. And reportedly, his prayer was this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And then they burn him at the stake because he translated the Bible into the language of common people. Well, God wasn't finished. Uh, Tyndale's life was over, but his work continued on. In fact, uh, there was, it was only a year later, interesting that he had prayed for God to open the eyes of the king because a year later the king actually did approve what was called the Thomas Matthew English translation of the New Testament. Uh, what the king didn't know was that Thomas Matthew was a pseudonym and that almost all of what was contained in that translation was Tyndale's work. So it got out there, but at great cost to him. When I read stories like that, um, it blows my mind for a couple of reasons. There are a couple of things about it that blow my mind. Number one, it blows my mind that the church, or what would be called the church, it wasn't really, in my opinion at that time, operating as a true church. But what was even had the name of a church would think that it was a good idea to bring anybody to the center of the town and burn them at the stake, much less somebody who simply wanted to get the Bible into the hands of common people. That blows my mind that that's where they were at that time. Here's the second thing that blows my mind, is that somebody would have that level of commitment and passion about getting the Word of God into the hands of people that he would not only dedicate his entire life, and this guy was a genius, he would take his intellectual gifts and just pour every ounce of his energy into, I mean, can you imagine teaching yourself Hebrew and Greek? I've stated them both. I'm going to tell you right now, I had teachers and it was really, 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 really hard. 
and translating from the original, I mean, just devoting your life to that, that is mind-blowing in and of itself. But beyond that, the fact that he would be willing to give up his life. Why? Because he read something in this book that lit him on fire, and he thought, I want other people to be able to read what I have read. I don't want other people to have to be told what they're supposed to believe. I want them to read it for themselves. And I see stories of people like him and so many others, and it wasn't just Tyndale and Wycliffe. There are many, many others. If you you go look, you'll find stories of other people. But they had that passion for God's Word, and I think, and yet how often do I just take it for granted? Several copies, you know, maybe not think that much about it. I read my Bible, but but how often do we just, you know, kind of not appreciate what we have? Today we're going to continue on with our series as we're talking about refocusing and, and, and we're going to talk about uh, our fourth priority and the, here it is. It is that we must apply the Bible to real life. Apply the Bible to real life. I, I love seeing what others have done as they've gone before us to help us to do that. In fact, I can really think of nothing more exciting than to have a mission in life that you're so passionate about that you're willing to give your life for. Um, Some did, so that we could have Scripture in our own language. Back in in the day, of course, um, that wasn't the goal of the church because they wanted to maintain control. They wanted to be able to tell people what to believe and for them not to have a way to check it and see whether they should or shouldn't. And, And so I find that sad when I look back so long ago, and I find it sad that it's still the case today for so many people. Guys, there are millions of people that right now, sitting in a church somewhere, letting somebody else tell them what they should believe, and they just accept it. And in many cases, what they're being told has no foundation in Scripture at all, but they don't know that because either they're told, don't read your Bible, you won't be able to understand it, or it's not encouraged, or they just don't do it. And so this is still an issue today. I want to tell you right now, don't let anybody, including me, tell you what to believe. The great news is that we have direct access to the documents of our faith. This is the cool part. Now, whether you're a believer, whether you're somebody that's, you know, maybe really doesn't believe all this, and you're, you have questions and, and you're not so sure what you think about the Bible, here's the cool thing, or you think about Christian faith, is you can check it out for yourself. You know, don't be intimidated to open the Bible. Don't be intimidated to read it. I mean, I think sometimes we have this misperception in our minds that the Bible is, is you know, so complicated that the average person would not be able to understand it. Let me tell you how, how the, the New Testament um, originated. It was written in the language, in the Greek language. But did you know at that time there were two forms of the Greek language? There was the the higher form, the academic form. It was a literary type of a Greek that only educated people could understand. And then there was the language of the common people. There was the language of the streets. It was called Koine Greek. And when the New Testament was written, it was not written in that high academic language. It was written in the language of the people. It's Koine Greek. And it was because I am convinced that God wanted everyday average people to be able to understand what he was saying. And that's why I'm so grateful that we do have so many wonderful, very accurate translations of Scripture that are put into language. And by the way, I would encourage you to get a translation of the Bible that is accurate, but also is in a language that you can understand. 
and it makes sense to you. Uh, we have access to that. So you don't have to depend on somebody else, me or anybody else, to tell you what to believe. I mean, yes, there is a role for those that have been trained, and there are certain parts of Scripture that may be more difficult to understand. But by and large, I just want to encourage you today, get into your Bible, open it up and read it for yourself. Let's do it right now. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, I want to focus on just a couple of verses today, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, let's, we're going to spend some time talking about this this morning, but, but first I want to talk about what I think is something important for us to, to grapple with, and that is, how is it that we associate what we're reading here, this letter that was written to the, to the Hebrew people, how do we associate that and the rest of the Bible as being the Word of God? Maybe you've heard that term before. If you've grown up in church, certainly you have. Sometimes we refer to this Bible as God's Word or the Word of God. Why is it that we associate this with the Word of God? And I, this could be you know, weeks' worth of discussions, but let me just kind of give you a brief summary on that. Uh, one, by the time of, of Jesus' day, they had really come to an agreement of what the authoritative works of what we now call our Old Testament were. So that was, that was pretty much uh, accepted by that point in time. The real question then becomes, okay, what about the New Testament? Because when Hebrews was written and he's talking about the Word of God being living and active, it is talking about God's Word that was revealed in the Old Testament. And the context of this is to the Jewish people as they were wandering in the desert and God was speaking to them. And he's talking about the Word of God being living and active there. So how do we take the leap from Old Testament, you know, God speaking through prophets and other things to saying, okay, well, even books like Hebrews, when it talks about the word being living and active, it applies to itself. Here's just a brief overview of, of how we came to um, recognize what we call the canon of Scripture. If you ever hear that term canon, the word canon means a measuring stick. So anytime you hear canon, it means this is what was, what was considered to be the, 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 the measurement of God's word. This canon of Scripture, uh, it includes 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books. How do we come to that point? And some, you know, think, well, it just kind of happened or the, you know, there was a lot of corruption involved or the church, you know, fought over this or that. Here's the truth of, of, of how we got to this point of accepting the books that we now have in our New Testament. There were basically four criteria that they used, that they looked at to decide whether a book should be included in what we now call our canon of Scripture. One was that it had to be written by an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. Somebody, for example, like Luke, who was very close to Paul, traveled with him. Somebody like Mark, who was very close to Peter. There, it was either an apostle or somebody directly connected with apostle. That was one. Number two, it had to be theologically orthodox, meaning that it did not contradict the rest of Scripture. There were some writings uh, during the first century, first part of the second century, that were just out there. Different. You may hear of things like the Gospel of Thomas or other things like that. They're just wild. They have stuff that just totally doesn't match up with the rest of Scripture. So it's not included. Number three, it had to be commonly used by the church. 
And number four, they were discerned as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there was that sense of, of just, you know, does the Spirit within us um, resonate that this is, in fact, the Word of God. But let me give you a couple of quotes of people that, that, that I thought were helpful, and they're a whole lot smarter than I am, so I'm just going to quote them. One is a guy by the name of F.F. F. Bruce. He had a classic work called the New Testament Documents, written in 1960. This is what he said. He said, one thing that must be emphatically stated, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesi ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa at Hippo Regius in 393 and Carthage in 397. But what these councils did, listen to this, was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. J.I. Packer put it this way in God Speaks to Man. He said, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and he similarly, similarly gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. In other words, God gave it to us. The church had already recognized it, and when they formalized it, they were just formalizing what was already readily acceptable by that time. So I hope that, that makes a little bit of sense, but, but God definitely uh, did work through that whole process of inspiration and in not only the books that were written, but giving us what we have here. So, so we stand on solid ground when we start applying this concept of the Word of God, not just to Old Testament, but to New Testament as well. So let's jump in and talk about a few things here uh, from Hebrews 4. Why it's so important for us to apply the Bible to real life, because that's what we're talking about today. We're not just talking about, I mean, some of this stuff is interesting. It's interesting to have some academic background, and, and, and we should be using our intellect and those kinds of things, but that's not enough. We need to take God's Word, and we need to, to live by it. We need to apply it to our lives. First reason is this, is because, as it says here, it is alive and active. It's living and active. The Word of God is living and active. Contrary to what some think, some people think, this book, it was written so long ago, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it couldn't possibly apply to my life today. But it's crazy if you get into it how you'll find that it really is living. It really is active. It really does apply right to where we live. In fact, uh, if you question that, by the way, most of the time people who say that, who say, well, the Bible is so outdated, I'm just like, if you ever felt that way, I'd like to ask you a simple question. When was the last time you read it? Are you, are you basing that on what somebody else said about the Bible? Are you basing it on what you perceive to be a certain doctrine that the church believes? I mean, have you really taken the time to get into, open the Bible for yourself and read it for yourself and find out? I do that on a regular basis. Let me tell you what I read on Friday morning, just two days ago. On Friday morning, I've been going through the book of Romans, which, by the way, every morning I do a little Facebook post, just a two- or three-minute devotional of whatever I read that morning on our, on our church Facebook page. And where I was in Romans chapter 8 on Friday. If you, if you ever question whether the Bible applies to real life, I would encourage you to go and read Romans chapter 8. I, I jotted down just a few bullet points, and this isn't all of them, but these are some of the things that are addressed... In Romans 8, dealing with feelings of self-condemnation, the inward battle between right and wrong, 
how to live victoriously, the importance of not becoming a slave to fear, the good that comes out of suffering, finding real hope, how to respond when we aren't sure what or how to pray, gaining perspective on why God allows bad things to happen, knowing that you're never alone. That's, that's just a few bullet points. Does that sound like some things that might be applicable to where we are today? It's remarkable to me that something written 2,000 years ago, I can read a chapter like that and go, oh my goodness, this, this, is, this could have been written today. Because the Word of God is living and active. It's amazing how that works. But you know, that being said, the Bible is a lot like medicine. You know, I, I am thankful that we live in a day where we have a lot of good medicine available to us. And, you know, I, I am absolutely convinced that just as we see in Scripture that God and Jesus, when He lived and walked on the earth, would heal people and things like that. And, and, and we see God doing that in the Old Testament, New Testament. I, I believe that God still continues to do that and absolutely can do that on His own apart from anything else. But I also believe that God has given us medical advances. I believe that God has given us doctors and nurses and others that can help us and medications and other things that can really uh, be quite beneficial to us. And so the Bible is a lot like medicine. But here's the thing. You can go to a physician who can properly diagnose your situation, prescribe medicine for you. That medicine isn't going to do you any good just because it's prescribed for you. You still have to go and purchase the medicine, right? You got to get your hands on it. But you could go and purchase the medicine. It's still not going to do you any good as long as it's just sitting there on your counter. What do you have to do? You have to take it, right? You take the medicine as it is prescribed. You allow it to get down inside of you so that it can do what it's designed to do. That's exactly how the Bible is. It is designed not to just sit on a counter somewhere so that we can look at it and say, isn't that wonderful? I have a Bible in my house. Now maybe it'll ward off all the scary things or whatever. That, that's not how it works. How it works is that we take the medicine. We, we let it get down into us and, 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 and do what it needs to do. You see, the, the, the truth of the, of the matter is that we do have an illness. All of us do. We have the same illness, and that is sin. We all have a sin sickness. We have chosen to, to walk away from God. We have chosen to go our own path. That's ultimately what sin is. It's, it's choosing our own way over God's way. And we all do it. It's not just the big, you know, going and killing somebody or whatever. I mean, we do it. Attitudes, gossip, whatever. And so we have a problem. We are ill because of, of sin. And the Bible tells us that the wages, the cost of sin is death. Meaning not just physical death, which eventually will happen, but spiritual death. That we are separated from God in this life and we will continue to be separated from God forever because of our sin unless something takes care of that illness. Now Jesus came in order to become our substitute for sin. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us, to pay the price for sin that, that you and I owe. And he gave himself on the cross. He died. He rose again. He's alive today. And, and through faith in him. See, faith is like taking our medicine. 
We, we, have to, we have to let it get inside of us. We don't just let it sit there and believe it. I can, I can have medicine that will help me and actually believe that it will help me, but if I don't ever do anything with it, if I don't take it, then it's not going to do me any good. Putting our faith in Jesus is like taking that medicine, saying not only do I believe this is true, but I'm going to receive Jesus by surrendering control of my life to Him. I'll make Him King, make Him Lord of my life. And when we do that, then we begin to be changed inside and our sins are forgiven, we're made new. But my point is this, how do we know that? We only know that because of this. So, so the Bible is alive and active, it deals with our deepest issue. And, and part of that is what it says in verse 12 as well. Maybe me again, uh, it, what it says in verse 12, when it says it's alive and active, it says it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Here's the second thing I want us to see is that it penetrates our inmost parts. See, the, the, the Bible and the truth of the Bible, the message of the Bible, gets down into the core of who we are. At first glance, when you look at that, and you think sharper than a double-edged sword, and it penetrates... That sounds incredibly violent and painful, doesn't it? Think about being sliced open by something that is going to cut you down to your innermost parts. That doesn't sound pleasant and it doesn't sound like something we want to be a part of. But I, but I would say, well, it depends. If you're talking about somebody that is just a, a, a madman who is wielding a knife and attacking people and attempting you know, to stab his knife into them and cut them, then that's a very bad thing. That is very painful and there's no good that can come out of that. But people voluntarily submit themselves to being cut every single day. It's what we call surgery, right? That's what surgery is. Let's say, for example, that you've got a, a knee problem. There's no cartilage at all left in your knee. It's just bone on bone, incredibly painful. Talk to somebody who's been through that and they'll tell you it's incredibly painful to live like that. In fact, it's, it's really almost impossible to live that way. And so what do people sometimes do? They go in, they find a surgeon, somebody that they believe, number one, knows what they're doing, and number two, is actually going to cut them for a beneficial purpose. That when they slice into them, they're doing so because ultimately they're working toward bringing their healing. That's the purpose. There's a difference there. Now, you ask somebody who's gone through a surgery, especially one like that, and they'll tell you that the pain is real. The recovery is incredibly painful. And yet they pay thousands and thousands of dollars to have someone do that to them. Why? Because they know that the ultimate result is that, yes, there is pain involved, but, but there's pain for a purpose. Guys, when it says that the Bible is a double-edged sword that penetrates and cuts through dividing soul and, and spirit and joints and marrow and all that. What it's saying is that God is getting down into the inmost parts of who we are in order to perform surgery. He's doing it for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring about healing. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, that can be painful. The initial part of it can be painful, and so sometimes we um, avoid it. Just like people that have a knee problem sometimes avoid surgery because they're saying, I don't want to go through that. It's going to be painful. It's going to be expensive. But at some point, the pain becomes so great that they're like, I don't care. I've got to do something. And at some point, you come to an understanding that although this might be a little scary, I've got such a problem 
in my life that I need God to do surgery on me. And I need to be open to what the Word of God wants to do and wants to say. And, um, and, and so we desperately need that. And then, and then it talks after that about how it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And to me, this is so important because I'll be the first one to tell you, I can rationalize just about anything and come up with an argument and a reason why something's not right or whatever. We need some standard or something to judge the attitudes and the actions that, that, that are a part of our lives. We need the truth to come out. And this is the, the third thing that I want to talk about, and we'll, we'll conclude with this. Third reason we need to apply the Bible to our lives is because God's Word reveals the truth. Let me tell you about the worst day of my life. June 10th, 2019. Uh, we were on our way back from visiting our oldest daughter, Brooke, in Lubbock. We had a great time. Great trip, and we're on our way home. And the whole time we were gone, we were waiting on test results for our youngest daughter, Autumn, who was 17 at the time. We're about an hour away from home when my phone rings, and it's the doctor, and he was calling to give us test results. And I heard the words that nobody ever wants to hear, and certainly no parent ever wants to hear. It's cancer. That was the worst day of my life. I didn't want to hear that. In fact, I wanted to hear anything but that. But I'm glad he told me the truth. Because once you know what you're dealing with, at least you can come up with a plan of action, right? See, if, if we didn't know about Autumn's cancer, we wouldn't have been able to come up with a treatment plan for it. And, the likelihood is it would continue to grow and things would continue to get worse. And so as painful as it can be sometimes to hear the truth, the truth is what allows us to take steps toward actually restoring and, and healing and getting where we need to go. Sometimes when we open our hearts to the truth of God's word, it's not what we want to hear. I think we need to be honest about that. Sometimes it's difficult. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. We need to hear the truth. And it's not because God wants to hurt us. It's because God wants to heal us. And it starts by us acknowledging the, 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 the truth of who we are, the truth of our sinfulness, and the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. All of that is revealed to us in this book that was written so long ago. That's why we need to take the Bible and we need to apply it to real life. I don't know where everybody may be this morning, but, but I want to tell you this, that, that we desperately need to respond in faith to Jesus and what he has done. And so I want us to, to just wrap things up that way today, whether you're here with us in person or whether you're watching online. I want to invite you if you've never come to a point before of trusting in Christ and, and surrendering control of your life to Him, allowing Him to do the heart surgery that we need to have done on us, it's a simple matter of, of faith and trust. And one of the best ways for us to express that is just to pray a prayer and say, I'm giving my life to you. So I want to invite you to do that with me today. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, 
We're going to bow our heads for a moment of prayer. We're even going to put the words on the screen for you so you can follow along. Uh, it's really not about the words, but sometimes it's helpful to have something to follow. It's really about our heart. But let's just pray. And I invite you to pray this prayer, inviting Christ into your life if you've not done so before. Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. If you're ready to receive Jesus as your personal Savior today, then just pray this prayer. Jesus, thank you for pursuing a relationship with me. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. I confess that I'm sinful and in need of you. Right now I turn away from my sin and I put my full trust in you. I surrender my life to your control. I'm yours from now on. Amen.